This is Sit Rap on BFBS with Kate Chabot. Royal Marines capture a tanker with illegal cargo bound for Syria. Hong Kong riots has the UK gone too far in condemning China. Putin says it's time the West changed its liberal ideas. The Foreign Office high flyer who never quite made Mach 3. I'm not sure I could ever fly a fighter jet, but I would like to have tried. And why Trump won't let the generals rain on his parade. have backed up authorities in Gibraltar who've taken control of Grace One, an oil tanker believed to be on its way to Syria with an illegal cargo of crude oil. The Marines from 4-2 Commando were sent from the UK at the request of the Gibraltar government. Here's Gibraltar's Chief Minister, Fabian Picardo. The only issue that Gibraltar is looking at here and the only thing that was determinative for us of having to take action is the destination of this vessel and its cargo, which is Syria. That is a regime that is sanctioned by the European Union and we were acting purely on the basis of the destination of this ship and cargo. Well, with me is our defence analyst, Christopher Lee. So uh, he said that the only factor was the destination of this. Where would they have got the information from, the intelligence on this, Christopher? Well, the, the originally, this vessel would have come out of the Gulf. That's the Gulf of Arabia, right? And the so-called, what used to be called the Persian Gulf. So that's where the oil supply is. Where has the oil supply come from there? Well, mainly it's coming through is coming through from Iran. The navies like the Royal, uh, the Royal Navy uh, and the RAF and satellites monitor everything, every ship that moves out of there and where it's heading from. And one of the first things that happens, the ship has to register what ship we're bound. So you get the name of the ship, Grace One, uh, where you bound, uh, destination unknown. So you start, start monitoring it. Now, that's where it came from. Where's it likely to go to? It's likely to go to a country, i.e. Syria, uh, which is not supposed to be getting oil supplies because the EU is against the Russian, uh, Iranian, uh, Syrian conglomerate, that which, which is actually running the place at the moment. And that's where the mystery starts. OK, so this vessel has been stopped. The people on board, as I understand, have been detained. What do you think happens next? Well, what happens now is that the ship can be uh, taken over the ship can actually sort of, uh, sort of come alongside in jib, and uh, tied up, and say, right, we've, you, we're going to confiscate the cargo. When you confiscate the cargo, you may as well confiscate. Well, you do. You confiscate the ship because that's where the cargo is in, rather than pump it ashore. You're now going to get it into all sorts of other difficulties. For example, this uh, this was an EU decision. It would have come through the EU because the EU is part of the sanction busting. Uh, system for Syria. However, where was the ship boarded? She was boarded, so it was in the Mediterranean. Yeah, but whereabouts in the Mediterranean? Was it in 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 the uh, seaway of Gibraltar, or was it in Spanish waters? Because if it was in Spanish waters, and British Royal Marines were sent out to board a vessel in Spanish waters, the Spanish might have something to say about that. Mm. Now, now, what's being said is that this uh, this cargo um, emanated 
began uh, its journey from Iran. The latest we're hearing is uh, by Reuters news agency is that the British ambassador to Tehran has been summoned uh, over what it's describing as the illegal seizing of this cargo. I mean, the, the potential of escalation is quite serious, isn't it? Yeah, because in, uh, you know the, the the vessel leaves vessel leaves the Straits of Hormuz and uh, coming out from uh, Iran. And as far as the Iranians are concerned, this is a vessel that's on charter to whoever's buying the oil. Um, and therefore, to some extent, you're actually raiding uh, a ship which, for the moment anyway, is, is, is under Iranian control. Having said that, there are sanctions against Iran. It's not supposed to be exporting this, is well, it? Well, there's a whole thing, a whole lot of things like that you're not supposed to do it. And for example, uh, if, you, if you dodge the Far East, where there are sort of things like uh, uh, North Korea is not supposed to be getting certain things. There are sanctions against North Korea. But the Chinese are running tankers across to North Korea and doing exactly the same thing as we see here. It's an international conspiracy to evade sanctions, and it's an international conspiracy to stop anybody doing so. And that is the size of what's going on all the, all the time at the moment. But what's interesting is, as I say, it's the Spanish thing. You know, the Spanish say, you know, shouldn't have gone into our waters, or we weren't told about it, or we kept, it was kept secret or not. And so it's, it, it, it becomes quite a big operation because you can't do this lightly. The Gibraltarians, I think, had to come to London, to the Ministry of Defence, and say, listen, we need to get an SBS team to back up uh, because it's not the SBS and not the Royal Marines that actually capture the ship. They only, they only do the muscle stuff. Uh, it, it, what happens is that somebody signals the ship as it's coming through and says, you know, what vessel are you? We're, we're, we're Grace One. Uh, where's your destination? Well, un, 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 undefined at the moment. Therefore, will you cease traveling, you know, stop the engines and have papers available. We want to send the guys aboard, not the Royal Marines, but sending people like, say, from customs and send for immigration. And that's what happened in the SBS was just sort of backing them up and saying, this is how you do it. All right, Chris, stay with us. Sit rep. Still to come, the British ambassador to the United Nations who wanted to be a fighter pilot and Trump's put his tanks on Washington streets. Now, this week, China has told the UK to keep its colonial nose out of the affairs in Hong Kong. The Chinese territory and former British colony has seen protests and violence over a controversial extradition bill that would allow people there to be sent to mainland China. Gisela Waldron spoke to Professor Steve Stang, who is director of the China Institute at the School of Oriental and African Studies at the University of London. The general agreement between the United Kingdom and China for the handover of Hong Kong stipulates that Hong Kong should enjoy a high degree of autonomy, which essentially means that Hong Kong should have the freedoms to do everything except in terms of foreign policy and defence matters. So why has the demonstration kicked off now? Well, because that degree of autonomy has been eroded very, very slowly and steadily over some 22 years. And in the last five years or so, that erosion has uh, accelerated. And there was also earlier in the year an attempt by the government in Hong Kong to rush through in parliament uh, two bills. And the bills, if passed, would make it possible for anybody in Hong Kong potentially to be renditioned to China 
to face a Chinese court of law. And the Chinese court of law is governed by the Communist Party, where there is no respect for judicial independence. Some people have said that this demonstration is Hong Kong's Tiananmen. What do you think about that? Well, we are not anywhere near there yet. Um, the demonstrations, the large-scale dem- demonstrations, when we are talking about half a million, a million, or potentially up to two million people out of seven uh, going to, on the streets in Hong Kong, they were demonstrating very specifically about the two bills that were being put through Parliament. They were not simply out there uh, making general demands about democracy or opposing the Communist Party or President Xi Jinping, which is also why the Chinese government has so far been, relatively speaking, been uh, restrained in how it is dealing with the situations in Hong Kong. Was the assault on the Legislative Council an act too far? It certainly was unwise, very poorly thought through and counterproductive. They do not achieve anything by stomping the parliament building, the Legislative Council building. And it was something which is not in line with the local political culture in Hong Kong or what most people in Hong Kong would like to see. What do you make of Britain's reaction to this? Um, Jeremy Hunt has been speaking again this morning, basically reiterating what he'd said earlier in the week. I think the Foreign Secretary is absolutely right. Uh, The United Kingdom has a legal obligation to Hong Kong under the Sino-British Joint Declaration of 1984, which is an international agreement lodged at the United Nations. Uh, It is really a bit uh, ridiculous for the Chinese government to come out to attack the UK and the Foreign Secretary simply because the British government insists on the terms of the agreement being respected, whereas the Chinese government says that, well, we don't want to be uh, bind by the agreement any longer, even though we signed it and it's supposed to continue to be in force until 2047. How has the Hong Kong-Beijing relationship fared in the years since the handover and where do you see it going in future? Well, the relationship between Hong Kong and Beijing in the last 20 years can be seen uh, in a glass half full or half empty uh, situation. One can see that things really have uh, not gone quite so well because of the erosion of Hong Kong's uh, freedom and... Uh, integrity in terms of its capacity for self-governance. But equally, one can see that for a Leninist political system, which is the system in place in China, to tolerate Hong Kong for 22 years after the handover is not a mean achievement. Um, We should be realistic in terms of... um, how we how we can um, maintain Hong Kong's weight of life completely undiminished. Uh, that would not be entirely realistic, even if that is legally where it should be. But moving forward, I think things are going to get much, much more difficult. Uh, the Chinese government, President Xi Jinping in particular, do not understand that things have got so much worse in the last five years 
because of the much more aggressive and repressive approach that Xi Jinping has taken in the last five years. Hong Kong did not have anything like a movement for independence or even a clarion call for self-determination until about five years ago. After the Chinese government uh, dishonored its promise to allow Hong Kong to have its chief executive directly elected, and that's what triggered people in Hong Kong, still a very, very small group of people in Hong Kong, mostly the younger generations, who started to ask for independence or self-determination because they could not see Hong Kong being allowed to have democracy as part of the People's Republic of China. It is that kind of increased repressive approach by the Chinese government that really created the current situation. If this continues, we are going to see tension increase, more protests, and potentially escalation in how the Chinese government will deal with it. That was Professor Steve Tsang, Director of the China Institute at the School of Oriental and African Studies at the University of London, talking to Gisela Waldron. Now, in a long interview with the editor of the Financial Times, President Putin of Russia has said that the rise of nationalist populist movements in Europe signalled the death of liberal policies in the West. Mr Putin said liberals cannot simply dictate anything to anyone, just like they have been attempting to do in recent decades. The liberal ideas has become obsolete. Well, let's talk to Russian affairs commentator Mary Dijewski. And Mary, good to speak to you. Is Mr Putin saying that the soft days of Western liberal attitudes are over or maybe they just should be? <laughs> well, I'm not sure that he's actually saying either, um, because I think that if you read the whole interview, as opposed to some of the um, the, the, the more lurid headlines, um, what Putin said was actually um, quite a bit more nuanced than it was suggested. Yes, he talked about um, liberalism, the liberal idea, I think he called it, um, as being obsolete. But when you read what he said... It wasn't in terms of it being dead and it being all over and, as it were, the West having lost in this um, maybe new ideological battle. Um, it was rather that he said that um, for the last 10, 20 years, um, liberalism, as he defined it, um, has had or gained a virtual monopoly on thinking in parts of the West. And it was that monopoly, that exclusion of other ideas that he found unacceptable. And the other ideas being his ideas, what's he putting forward? Well, the... Putin has always been, um, but it's a trend in that maybe has been reinforced over the last five years or so. He's been a conservative with a small c. Um, and when I was thinking about this interview in retrospect, because it created you know such a storm, um, really in quite a lot, a lot of parts of the West, um, it occurred to me that if you replaced his use of the word liberal idea with what we used to call you know, the permissive society, permissiveness. That is much more what he was talking about. He was talking about social mores. Um, he wasn't talking about, uh, as I could see it, you know, a great ideological, the sort of um, old-style ideological battle between communism and capitalism. Um, he was talking about... Um, 
the way people live their lives and what is considered, as it were, mainstream and acceptable. And for Putin, that in, that includes religion. Um, it's not Russian orthodoxy to the exclusion of everything else, but he sees Russia as primarily a Christian country. Um, and, you know, as I say, conservatism with a small c, anti-permissive um, society. Um, I think that would best sum up what he was on about. Chris Billy has been listening to this. Chris, what's your take on this? <laughs> There, um, one of the things I thought immediately was that, that this is this is Putin, which we hear snatches of. I, I don't mean more thoughtful, but it's the sort of thing that you get in asides from people like uh, Mrs. Merkel and maybe Sarkozy on a very bad day. It is the sort of great philosophical thinking which you don't get necessarily from so-called Western leaders now. No, I think that's true, and I think it's also maybe partly a reflection of the, the fact that Putin has been at the top of politics um, in Russia for so long. He's been on the world stage for so long, and maybe he sees, you know, 2024 is when Russia's ne next election um, is scheduled. Um, there's questions, especially in the West, as to whether Putin sees this as his last term. I would argue that I think he does, mm. and I think in a way this interview is... Um, reinforces that idea that uh, Putin is thinking about things um, in a way that he didn't have time to in his early years in office. Mary, and notably he said he thinks that uh, both the UK and Russia are interested in fully restoring their relations. Do you buy that? I absolutely buy it. Um, I think this interview to the FT was um, part of the evidence for that. Um, I think there have been a lot of small signals. There have been some um, rather minor-looking bilateral agreements that have been signed. Um, there's been a little bit of um, more activity, I would say, on behalf of the um, on the part of the Russian embassy in London in terms of sending out press releases, um, pointing out these little bits of discussions, little you know, people being received, little small agreements. Um, mm. And I think, you know, even though we all saw those pictures of Theresa May looking absolutely daggers mm. um, when she was shaking Putin's hand, um, I think that, you know, that was a large degree of theatre. Right. And the fact that she met Putin at all, I think, is almost, you could see it as in part intended to sort of clear the decks for whoever's next the prime minister in the UK. All right, Mary Dijewski, we'll leave it there. Thank you for your time today. Now, it is the 4th of July and President Trump is holding a military extravaganza in Washington today to celebrate American Independence Day. Well, let's talk to Simon Marks from Feature Story News. Simon, hello. Uh, what's he doing and why is he doing it? Well, uh, he is being accused by his critics, Kate, of co-opting America's uh, biggest holiday of the year, Independence Day, uh, and turning it into a political campaign rally uh, ahead of his uh, quest to seek re-election next November, November 2020, uh, here in the United States. But what Donald Trump says he's doing is simply trying uh, to celebrate America. He has taken to uh, Twitter this morning to say people are coming from far and wide for what is turning out to be one of the biggest celebrations in the history of our country, Salute to America, an all-day event at the Lincoln Memorial 
culminating with large-scale flyovers uh, of the most modern and advanced aircraft anywhere in the world. Very controversially, there are a couple of tanks parked on either side of the Lincoln Memorial. The Pentagon has been scrambling to try and give Donald Trump what he wants, which is basically the kind of military parade that he watched when he was in France for the Bastille Day celebrations two years ago. Ever since then, he has coveted the idea uh, of co-opting the military and getting them involved in the July 4th celebrations. That's what he's trying to do today, but the weather may not cooperate. Electric storms, lightning, thunder, it's all expected right around the time that the fireworks are supposed to get underway. Oh my word, what can you see happening then, Simon? Uh, a president who will doubtless claim that this has been the greatest event America has ever witnessed. We may well find ourselves once again uh, in the middle of a debate over crowd size. Uh, White House uh, insiders have been telling reporters privately that they have been scrambling to try and control the president's expectations for this particular event, but that that has been extremely difficult. We know that uh, within the Pentagon, they remain increasingly concerned uh, about the use of the military in a sort of politicised forum. Uh, the president's deputy press secretary insists that when he makes his speech at the Lincoln Memorial uh, later in the day here, it will not be a political speech. It will be an attempt by the president to unite Americans on America's birthday. But one of the uh, Democrats who aspire to succeed Donald Trump in the White House, Senator Kamala Harris of California, said a few hours ago, Donald Trump needs to understand this is is America's birthday, not his birthday, and he keeps conflating the two. And briefly, Simon, who is going to be there, apart from Donald Trump, of course? Well, I think that's going to be a very interesting question. I mean, there were questions last night as to whether the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, General Joseph Dunford, was even going to show up for this. He certainly hadn't confirmed uh, his attendance as late as uh, as last night. I, I mean, look, the mall every year, the National Mall, is the scene for a great celebration for fireworks and music uh, and people coming from all over the country. But, you know, by turning this into more of a political event than it's been in the past, those people who decide to go, in essence today, find themselves making a bit of a political statement. All right, Simon Marks, enjoy the spectacle. Thank you for your time today, Simon Marks from Feature Story News. Now, if you listened to last week's programme, you'd have heard the first part of our interview with the UK's ambassador to the United Nations, Dame Karen Pearce. In part two, she talks about how she feels the UN could be reformed, UN peacekeeping, and how she would have liked to have served in the RAF. The United Nations was founded in 1945 after the Second World War to promote security and world peace. I asked her how challenging the UN was finding current world issues. Well, I think times have got harder in many ways for the UN from 1945, though it's important to remember that at the height of the Cold War, uh, no resolutions passed through the Security Council because uh, the Russians blocked them. So that's, that's a very important point. If you take issues like Yemen... Uh, some of the Africa issues, the UN is making good progress on those uh, and the Security Council is working well. Uh, big power issues like Syria are frankly much harder uh, and probably require uh, much more of a great power agreement between the US and Russia that the UN can then come in uh, and support. The UN can't uh, bridge the gap 
um, between the great powers if the great powers uh, don't want it to. And you'll be aware that Russia has vetoed UN Security Council resolutions 12 times uh, in recent years. So that's, you know, that's, that's not letting the UN in. Uh, but in general terms, I think the UN is trying to make itself fit uh, for the 21st century. And that's an important priority for the UK too. Yeah, yeah, it's making itself fit, and the US president himself thinks that there needs to be reforms at the UN. To what extent do you agree, and how would you reform the UN? Uh, well, the UN needs reform across uh, quite a large part of its functions. Uh, it has many of the procedures uh, that were set up in 1945 uh, or from the 1960s, from its big period uh, of decolonization. It did decolonization very well. Uh, but it's been left over, if you like, uh, with a lot of things that now need updating. Um, that includes its budgets, its human resources approach, uh, the way it organises itself, the way it puts people in the field uh, or brings them to headquarters. Uh, we are very keen, as the UK, on management reform so the UN can make its money uh, go further. Uh, but there is lurking in the background a very big issue of representation, uh, and this fundamentally comes down to Security Council reform. When the UN was founded, it had 55 members, one-fifth of whom, 11, sat on the Security Council. Uh, there are now 193 members, uh, and there are 15 members of the Security Council. So there's a bit of a representation deficit there, uh, but the UN is stuck at the moment on how to move that forward. So do you see a solution? Uh, it's easy to write down the solution. It's, it's more permanent seats. Um, and the British government's on record as saying they would support seats for Germany, Japan, India, Brazil, and two for Africa. The problem is getting there from where we are now, because there isn't a majority or a consensus in the General Assembly for how we reform the Charter. So we all have to work on that. On the subject of UN peacekeeping, there are 14 missions around the world at the moment, if I'm right. <laughs> um, which do you think are working the best and where do you think there is room for improvement? Uh, well, I'd just like to use this opportunity to thank all those military personnel uh, from Britain who serve in uh, UN missions. Uh, we have some 600 uh, worldwide, uh, with the majority uh, being the Royal Engineers in South Sudan, uh, and then we have uh, 270 infantry uh, with UN forces in Cyprus. Uh, but we have many more uh, right the way across the world. Um, I think all the missions do good work, uh, but there's scope for improving uh, the way they carry out their mandates and making sure that their mandates are sufficiently attuned uh, so that they uh, bear resemblance to what's needed on the ground, uh, but also don't ask the UN missions to do things for which they're not equipped, uh, which often means not doing police tasks. Uh, and we've got to uh, find a way of getting the right balance. This, if I'm right, is your dream job. If I'm also right, I think uh, when you were at school, you used to draw pictures of fighter planes in yes, your I art did. class. Yeah. Um, I did. Um, I lived near um, Wharton, uh, where the tornado was made. So I used to draw that in my art class and also um, American jets. So you were obviously very aware of the military at a young age. Did you ever feel tempted to go down that line? I mean, there's never been a, a female chief of defence staff, for example. Um, yes, I, I was actually. Uh, if they'd um, allowed women to fly fighter jets uh, when I was younger, then I would seriously have considered joining the RAF. Uh, but they didn't, uh, and so I didn't join the RAF. No regrets, though? 
Oh, well, um, I'm not sure I could ever fly a fighter jet if you... Um, but I would like to have tried. I've been in one, but I haven't actually flown one. That's probably the right balance. And just a final question. Um, what kind of thing wakes you up at night worrying? Oh, that's a very good question. I, I have several things that wake me up at night uh, worrying. Um, I worry very much about the Syria uh, conflict because uh, it's just been going on for such a long time uh, and it seems to be intensifying in terms of the number of people, civilians affected. Um, but I think if I had one thing to worry about more than any other, it's that we don't respond robustly enough uh, to various uh, issues. It might be the use of chemical weapons. Um, and therefore, we... You mean we as a UK government? No, we the West, I'm sorry, we the West... Uh, don't respond robustly enough when there's a big provocation, something like use of uh, CW, and thereby uh, we give the bad guys an excuse to try again. Uh, so by not responding robustly, you actually create an incentive in the wrong direction. And I worry about that quite a lot because I, um, I do think there is something important uh, about the rules-based international order. Uh, but like all systems, if it's not policed, uh, if it's not stood up, uh, then it will begin to wither. Ambassador, it's been great to meet you. Thank you for your time. Thanks very much for having me. Thank you. That was Dame Karen Pierce, and you can hear the full 20-minute interview I did with her in New York on our website, forces.net slash news. Uh, Christopher, um, what keeps you awake at night? Not being able to... Um... Tell you what, Henry Kissinger, I asked him the position of, on the Security Council, which was the most dangerous style. And he says, the fact that you knew that you would not be on the same level as your allies. And that's what she's really saying, is that you cannot get the decisions you know you should be able to get. And that really is a, a, a sleepless night stuff, because mm. you're going in there the next morning and you've got to be able to say, this is what we should be doing. Know that perhaps that you cannot do it. Looks like we're going to have to have a part through, Karen Pierce, doesn't it? It does. Mm. We ought to have some noises of tornadoes. Well, I'm afraid that's all we have time for today. Have you got an opinion on anything in the programme? Send us a tweet at BFBS Sitrep. You can join us again at the same time next week. Thank you for listening. I'm Kate Jabot. Bye-bye for now. Bye.